Let's come together now under the teaching of the Word of God. I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Hebrews, the 13th chapter, and the text of the morning begins at verse 8. Hebrews chapter 13, beginning at verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. For it is well that the heart be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited their adherence. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the, the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing abuse for him. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city which is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. I want to draw our attention to verse 10 and remind you of something that we talked about last week. First, to set the stage for verse 16, which is the verse where we're going to focus our attention. Verse 10 says, we have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. Now, the we there is us Christians. We Christians have an altar, that is the cross, where Christ was sacrificed from which those who serve the tent, that is the Jewish priests who are serving with the old sacrifices in the tabernacle or the temple, have no right to eat. So what this means is that Jesus was given by the Father as a sacrifice for sins. He died on an altar outside the city, outside the gate. We have an altar where he took our place and where he became a kind of eternal food for us so that if we eat from the altar, as it were, the living bread, drink the living water that poured from his side, we will live forever. And what it means when it says the priests have no right to eat from this altar is that they don't believe in the altar. See, the only thing that keeps a person from eating of the altar of the cross and living forever, having eaten of what Jesus sacrificed, is unbelief. We know this because of John 6.35. Listen to what Jesus said. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger. And he who believes in me shall never thirst. So there are two things and two things only that you need to do in order to live forever having eaten of the sacrifice offered by Jesus. Believe and come. The only reason it says that these priests have no right to eat is because they don't believe. They say he's not the Messiah. They say he's not the son of God. They say he's just another prophet. And therefore his sacrifice is a bogus sacrifice and can in no way remove the old sacrifices. He's not real. And therefore the writer says, well, if that's the way you think about the Lord Jesus, you have no right at his altar. And so what we really have in verse 10 is a tragic division within 
the household of faith. A division between the true and the false religion. Judaism veers off this way without the Christ and Christianity is born. We have two altars. You see this? There are two altars now. The old altar in the temple where the animals are still sacrificed and the new altar where the sacrifice of Jesus was made once for all at the end of the age for the forgiveness of sins, putting an end and fulfilling all the Old Testament sacrifices. And the Jews in that day had a choice. A Jew or a Gentile could say no to Jesus and be forbidden from the altar of the cross. Or a Jew or a Gentile could say yes to Jesus and be welcomed to the new altar where sins are forgiven and everlasting life is imparted through the bread of Jesus. Now, that's the context in which we read verses 13 to 16, where I believe what we have is a beautiful threefold description of what the new religion, the new faith is all about. What is this new thing now, this new altar, this new sacrificial system, this new thing? If, the, if Judaism is going to go its own way and reject Jesus as its Messiah, which it's done to this day, what is this new thing? What characterizes Christianity? And the author gives a summary answer in three priorities or three statements. Verse 13, the Christian life is a sacrifice of suffering. Let us go forth with him outside the camp and bear abuse which he endured. We'll talk about that next week. Second, the Christian life is a sacrifice of praise. Verse 15, through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of the lips that acknowledge his name. We talked about that last week. Today, number three, verse 16, the Christian life is a sacrifice of a shared life. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So we said last week that the number one priority of Bethlehem Baptist Church is to cultivate hearts that stand in awe of God so that when we give praise as a sacrifice, it is the fruit of lips and not the works of the law, which it would be if there were no awe and worship within. There is such a thing as hypocrisy. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Matthew 15, 8. But the point this week is that Bethlehem Baptist Church must never be content merely to be a worshiping community, nor could any Christian fellowship merely be a worshiping community. The, the worship would abort and be perverted so quickly if that's all it attempted to be. So today we focus on priority number two, Bethlehem must be a place where we cultivate the sacrifice of a shared life. From verse 16, it says, Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have. And then a reason is given, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. What do you think is in the author's mind when he says that we ought to give sacrifices that consist in doing good and sharing with one another what we are and what we have? Let me just out of the context point you to some verses that I think give the kind of thing he has in mind. 
Go back to the beginning of the chapter with me, if you have your Bible open, and look at verses 1, 2, and 3 of this chapter. It says, let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect. That's the same phrase that you have in verse 16. Do not neglect. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. For thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember, which is the other way of saying don't neglect, those who are in prison, as though in prison yourself with them, and those who are ill-treated, like unborn babies, since you also are in the body. Now, there are three examples. They're just examples. It's not exclusive by any means. Uh, hospitality is one way to offer a sacrifice of a shared life. So, for example, now that we are not having evening services every Sunday, my prayer is that you are going to feel a lot more freedom and inclination to do hospitality on Sunday afternoon after these services. So that you look around in your Sunday school class or you get into conversations after a service like this and you say to somebody that you don't know, um, why don't you come on over? We'll put another plate on. I love it that there are people with the gift of hospitality. You know what? What it looks like at home, it's simple and it's expandable on Sunday noon. It is not designed to be fancy. My wife served the president of Bethel College on paper plates on Sunday afternoon after church as a model to how this church ought to do hospitality. Forget fancy silverware on Sunday. It can be soup and sandwich if it's for God's sake and for God's people and to win others. Hospitality is a very practical way to offer a sacrifice pleasing to the Lord. Another one right here in the text is to go to the prisons and to visit people. I presume in that context, as we'll see next week, it probably had in mind Christians who've been imprisoned, but there's no reason to limit it to that. Prison ministries are a tremendously important thing because there's great stress and vulnerability and openness in prison And the third one is very broad, very broad. Those who are ill-treated, perhaps being persecuted or whatever. Anybody ill-treated or suffering in your network or outside your network. So those are just three simple examples of the way to offer a sacrifice of a shared life. One of the reasons that we have in your bulletin this morning this small group Line up, and one of the reasons Tom is going to come talk about it at the end is we believe that small groups are one of the key ways in a big church by which relationships are cultivated in which you can most caringly and lovingly and consistently offer a sacrifice of a shared life to each other. Very difficult to offer a sacrifice of a shared life when you don't know anybody. Tom will talk more about how the small group vision fits into this text and what we're saying. What I want to do with the remainder of the few minutes I have is look at this last phrase in the text. For such sacrifices are pleasing to God. And I want to ask why they are. Why, when you do good and live for others and share your life, give it away, Pour yourself out for the hungry. Satisfy the desire of the afflicted. Why does God smile at that? Why is he delighted? Why does so much joy reverberate in the heart of God when he watches you do that? 
Now, there are three reasons, at least, given in this surrounding context. Let me point you to them. Number one, God is delighted or pleased with your doing good and sharing because it honors the death of his son. And he loves to magnify the death of his son and its worth. Where do I get that? I get it from verse 12. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Now, why did he give himself outside the gate? Why did he die? To sanctify you by his blood. Jesus died to make you holy. Jesus died to make you good and pure and loving like he is. That's why he died. Now, what's the link between his death, his blood, his sanctifying desires and aims and purposes and your good deeds? Titus 2.14 says, Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all iniquity, to purify for himself a people zealous for good deeds. So another way to say it, besides verse 12 of our text, another way to say that he died to sanctify you is that he died to make you zealous for good deeds. Therefore, if you are zealous for good deeds, you show that the death of Jesus was not in vain in your life. Does that make sense? If he died to make you zealous for good deeds and you become zealous for good deeds, you show he died not in vain. That is, you magnify the power of Jesus. You magnify the worth of his suffering. You demonstrate the success of his suffering. And when God sees you acting in a way that illustrates the success of his son's death, he is glad. Because he loves to see his son's success magnified in the world. Does that make sense? If you are engaged in good deeds, Christ's death is vindicated in your life. Reason number two why God rejoices over the life of sharing and good deeds is because it displays his trustworthiness and his integrity in keeping his promises. Now, let me show you how that works. Go back to verse 5 of this chapter. Hebrews 13, 5 says, Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. And then here comes the ground or reason or basis for that charge. For... God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Now, ask yourself this question. What's the connection between the love of money and sharing of money? Or the love of money and the doing of good deeds? What's the the connection between selfishness and a centripetal life force that in order to be secure and happy and and uh, have well-being, you must gather, 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 and not uh, take any risks in giving too much of yourself or your possessions away. What's the connection between that and good deeds? Answer, it's a great hindrance. It's a great hindrance, isn't it? Loving money is a great hindrance to sharing your life. Therefore, anything that will help you overcome the love of money will be an incentive to share and do good. 
And what is it in verse 5 that overcomes the love of money? The promise of God. I will never leave you or forsake you. Every time you can throw your fears to the wind and let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, you illustrate your reliance upon God's keeping power and His worth to you. And when you do that, God sees His name vindicated. He sees His trustworthiness displayed. He sees His integrity in keeping the promises upheld. And God loves those who vindicate His integrity. He loves to watch kinds of behavior that just reek with the faithfulness of God. So much so that when you are doing those kinds of deeds, according to 1 Peter 3.15, people will look at you and say, well, look, hmm, he's not taking too much care to assure up the future, and he's not taking too much care to see that he gets praise, and he's not taking too much care to see that he is uh, coming out on top in this situation. I wonder where he's getting his strokes. And they come to you and say, what, what's, uh, what, what makes you tick? What's, where do you get your strokes? What, what, if, what is your hope? And you answer, Hebrews 13.5. Keep yourself free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. Because God promised me, He'll never leave me. He'll never forsake me. So I can just pour myself out for the hungry, satisfy the desire of good things. I don't need to be greedy. I don't need to have a centripetal. I can have a centrifugal lifestyle. Because God's going to keep moving into the center and supplying all the energy that can fly. God delights in good deeds and a shared life because they illustrate his trustworthiness in keeping his promises. Third and final answer to why God delights in your sharing your life is because this is his own work. When you do good deeds and when you share your life in goods, God's work is happening. Now, let me show you what I mean and where I get it. We'll go forward in the chapter this time to verses 20 and 21. This is a great benediction. Don't ride over benedictions in the New Testament. They are full of great doctrine as this one is. Verse 20, Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do His will. Now watch this next phrase. Working in you that which is, what? Pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. God equips you with what you need to do good, and when you are doing what is pleasing, it is because it is God at work in you. God working in you what is pleasing in his sight. So when you have the faith and the freedom and the zeal to give your life away, that's the work of God. So that you dare never say at the end of any day in which you have accomplished anything of worth. Huh, what a good boy am I. Rather, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. 1 Corinthians 
that no flesh might boast in the presence of God. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Why? Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15.10, I worked harder than any of them. Nevertheless, it was not I, but the grace of God which is with me. When you share your life and when you do good, it is a grace in you. And God will get the glory if you understand things properly. And God, as, as Psalm 104 says, delights in all his works. So should not he be pleased when you do good deeds, since it is the very work of his Holy Spirit within you, getting glory for God? Now, those are three reasons, and I'm sure there are more that we could think of. In fact, I think of one as I see this from Matthew 5:16, but there's no time to say it. Let me close by saying, if you understand God's reason for being glad at doing good and sharing your life, it should thrill you to do it. Isn't it a thrilling thing to know that your life this very afternoon could vindicate the worth of the death of Jesus? Is it is a thrilling thing to know that by pouring yourself out for the good of somebody, maybe you'll write a letter, maybe you'll make a call, maybe you'll make a visit, maybe you'll pray that this very afternoon the blood of Jesus could be magnified as successful in your life. And isn't it thrilling to think that by doing those very things, you could also uphold the integrity of God in keeping his promises as you trust in those promises and find freedom to give yourself away so that you don't have to just please yourself this afternoon because God's so hard at work for you, pleasing you. You can just spend yourself this afternoon for others so that his integrity in keeping the promises to work for you are upheld in your life. And thirdly, wouldn't it thrill your heart if you did something to know that it wasn't you doing it, but God doing it? So that you could say at the end of the day, he's in me. I saw him. He took over today. That wasn't me. I'm not inclined to act or talk like that. He worked in me. Praises be to God and not me. I mean, this is a thrilling way to live. This is the way that brings the heart its deepest satisfactions. And so as Tom comes now to help us understand a little better how the small group vision at Bethlehem fits into a shared life, my prayer is that you will be feeling right now a deep, deep desire. Oh, Lord, I just want more and more for my life to be a centrifugal life, to just be spent for others. I want to pour myself out for the hungry. I want to satisfy the desire of the afflicted. I want to do good deeds. I want to share what I have so that when I go to bed at night, I can know that I have vindicated your cross. I have upheld your integrity and I have experienced your very presence in my life. That's my prayer for you, that you'll feel that growing as Tom comes and tells you how the small group ministry fits in to all that.